Viscosity is high. Peachy apricot. Acid is medium. Smoky plums. Unfiltered camels. Candied lemons. Dave, what are you doing? I'm doing a wine tasting. You're drinking a White Claw. Yep. And this is the Pendulum Land Podcast. Nope. This is Infrastructure Junkies. What? Welcome, infrastructure junkies, to our show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry. We're your primary source of news, trends, and developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and the Uniform Relocation Act. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Bennett. Hey, Kristen, why did you change my script? Oh, Well, we changed the name of the podcast. What was known as the Pendulum Land Podcast is now Infrastructure Junkies because we wanted the name of the show to reflect and honor our community of listeners. Well, how's everybody going to find us now? Well, good news. If you've already found us and you're following and subscribing on our socials or on Google or Spotify or Apple, you're still following us and subscribing. We're the same people, the same show, and the same place. We just have a different name. So, Dave, what do we have for our Infrastructure Junkies today? Hey, did you know... There's a winery in Portland, Oregon called the Eminent Domain Winery. You know what? I didn't know that. In fact, in my office, I have a bottle of the 2017 First Protocol Pinot Noir, which was given to me by our friend Lee Inger with HDR. The name of that winery isn't called Eminent Domain just because they like the words. It's not just a clever name? No, there's a story behind this winery that has a lot to do with our industry, and it's fascinating. But first, new sponsor alert. Yes, today's episode was generously sponsored by HDR. HDR has more than 200 real estate and right-of-way professionals, and they act as advocates in the community on your behalf, while also taking into consideration the particular concerns of property owners and occupants. They specialize in challenging projects, tight schedule and budgets, sensitive alignments, and large alternative delivery teams. Their focus is on quality and efficiency to deliver solutions tailor-made for your needs and those of the community. You can find them at hdrinc.com. That's hdrinc.com. And thank you, HDR, for your generous sponsorship. Infrastructure Junkies with us today is Jeff Meter. He's the owner and founder of Eminent Domain Winery in Portland, Oregon. That's eminent domain with an E at the end of domain. And he's got a compelling story to tell. Jeff, how are you doing? Doing great, thanks. Appreciate you coming out today to join us on the Infrastructure Junkies podcast. And it's not very common where we run into somebody who would use eminent domain for anything other than curse words. So (laughs) you've got a very successful winery out on the West Coast called the Eminent Domain Winery, and we have got to hear the background on that. On the Eminent Domain or uh, on the winery itself or (laughs) on Eminent Domain and how it came about? Well, you've got a history with Eminent Domain, don't you? I certainly do. And you were the so-called victim of Eminent Domain? I guess you could say that, yes. My sister and I had owned a office building in downtown Portland by Portland State University, and we'd owned it since sometime in the early 90s. And at some point, I'd gone to a building owner manager association meeting and noticed that on their future plans for Portland, my building was not there. They had assumed it would be utilized at some point for high density housing, classrooms, and or retail. So I asked the question, they said, again, we assume that at some point you will sell your property for higher and better use. So... Fast forward a few years, and I get notified by Metro, TriMet, our local uh, planning and light rail mass transit people, that they would like to practice eminent domain on my property. Purpose being, 
they wanted light rail to come towards Portland State University to encourage high-density housing, a lack of parking would be needed if they could utilize light rail. So that was the kickoff. And that was probably late 90s, early 2000. We were in the middle of renovating the building for a new tenant. And we actually ended up putting in about $110,000 or $120,000 into the renovations while TriMet couldn't decide if they were actually going to move forward. When they finally did move forward, I had a very upset tenant who had been in the loop the whole time, but they still weren't very happy. TriMet was able to utilize the eminent domain process by saying they were going to put a platform right in front of our underground parking. And then they came around the building and needed about just a sliver off the corner of the building. Well, they did the same practice with everybody in the block, including an attorney. And the attorney was able, because of how his property was situated, they didn't need it. So he won out in court, but the rest of us lost. Well, Jeff, let me ask you a couple of questions about that. Just clear yeah. it up. So to use our lingo, it sounds to me like the plans were designed such that your building would be clipped, maybe the corner of the building, which would essentially be, were they going to take the entirety of the property, a total take as we call it? Yes, a total take. They said that the cost would be such that it justified just taking the building. And honestly, it was a wedge that ranged from two and a half feet down to a sliver, about 13 feet long, if I recall right. Now, mind you, this has been almost 20 years. Yeah. So things have gotten a little foggy. If they could have redesigned it such that it didn't clip your building, would that proposed infrastructure project have benefited your property? Or do you think that its existence, its proposed existence, spoiler alert, would have hindered the value or utilization of the property? It would have greatly helped the value of the property, no doubt. It would have been a game changer financially. So if they could have if, if they could have done the project with the stop in front of your leased building, that would have been great. Absolutely. The project Absolutely. would have been great. But instead, they designed it to clip the property, and they took the whole thing. Yes. And I asked that they move the platform down. Why can't you go down further? Why can't you move it? And they said, no, they wanted it right there. And I, of course, was the only property on the block that had underground parking. So... It was designed years before that my property would be high-density housing. It's no coincidence that it worked out the way it did. This is the way it was designed to happen. Mm -hmm. So did you settle? Was a lawsuit filed against you? How far along did the process go? And, and ultimately, spoiler alert, you lost your property. <laughs> yes, I did. I should probably also mention that Portland State University helped fund the light rail. They wanted this high-density housing. They wanted retail to be there for their student body. And they wanted the light rail, of course, so that people could come in without the parking situations that were in Southwest Portland. So yes, long story short, we lost a property. I think we ended up in arbitration. We did finally come through with a valuation that was adequate. Now, mind you, the first time they came out, they made us a, a I'll say an offer. They gave a valuation that was dictated by an independent appraiser, and that independent appraiser only worked for them. So it, hardly independent. There was nothing independent about it. They were set out to get the lowest valuation they could to keep everything below market value, in my opinion. And we proved that through arbitration and their hundreds of thousands of dollars additional that they ended up paying. Did you have to hire an attorney? Yes. And I guess you, your attorney or you and your attorney hired your own appraiser. And how'd you yes. feel about your own appraiser's results? Adequate for the time. It, it changed my life in many ways, for good and for bad. I think financially, if I had owned that property today, things would have been financially a little easier, perhaps. That all being said, we did end up reinvesting the money. And later, I purchased the land that we're sitting on today with our vineyard, our winery, our tasting room and where my family lives, above the winery. It's not a bad life. So sometimes things work out for the best if you're patient. Speaking of patience, I think about this all the time when I'm dealing with landowners and businesses. 
who are being affected by these projects. You mentioned something about how you were in the midst of renovating that building for a tenant. Landowners and tenants, they hear about these projects sometimes for a decade before it happens. And it's like, do you move forward? Do you not move forward? And I think about the amount of just enduring stress that would cause for someone. Like, do we move forward with this? Do we not? Was it hard to make the decisions on what to do at that point with your improvements? A great question. It was very hard. It was no small amount of money for right. a small business to be doing this. We were doing it for a nonprofit that was working with drug rehabilitation of youth. Oh, wow. And so it was all for the right reasons. And I really wanted to see this happen. I kept every email. I kept everybody in the loop as to what Metro was doing and that we were moving forward on the renovations, despite the fact that there was risk. And TriMet, or again, Metro, had said that, don't worry about it. If we move forward, we will pay you for these improvements. And I said, well, it's such a waste. This is taxpayer money. Why can't you make a decision? And then we can stop. And so we're not wasting the taxpayer's money for the increased valuation of the building, but they weren't prepared to. So I kept moving forward, working with this nonprofit to make everything happen. When we got through the process, when they finally did pull the trigger, the nonprofit assumed that I hadn't been up front and sued me for five counts of fraud. I ended up in court with attorney's fees. That cost over $20,000 and everything we went through. And we won on all five counts without hesitation. I kept every email. I was upfront with everybody. Everybody was aware of what was going on, both parties or all three parties. And we bounced out of it okay, not on skate. $20,000 isn't a small amount, but we did get through it all. It was unfortunate because the nonprofit as well had an attorney. And so they were wasting money that could have been put in better places. So the whole thing was really frustrating. Let, let, yes. Hold on. Let me get this straight. So you were, you and your sister, I think, were the owner of a parcel of property, which was the target of eminent domain. Correct. So you weren't marketing the property for sale, trying to get rid of it. You were happy and would still be happy to own that property today is what it sounds like to me. Absolutely. Great location. And this project comes along, which sometimes they do that. But as a result of the project, you then get sued by your own tenant, separate and apart from the eminent domain process. Is that right? That's correct. And yes. you had to come out of pocket for your own legal fees to defend a fraud lawsuit? Correct. Correct. Five counts. And, and I, very frustrating because I could not have been more upfront with everyone. Where we were at, every correspondence with Metro and to have it go the way it did was, it was wasteful. Again, it was either my money, taxpayer money, or nonprofits money. The whole thing was so wasteful. And it could have been so much better planned out, but it wasn't. That's awful. That is awful. Were, were you ever made whole for the attorney's fees and the fraud lawsuit? No, no, absolutely not. That was all out of our pocket. And you could never get back the sleepless nights. For being sued. Oh, the stress. I can't imagine. No, no it was a, a really bad time. Wow. Wow. Let's talk about better times. <laughs> well, I do have, I have got a couple more questions before we move on. So ultimately you lost that piece of property for a light rail project or a rail project. Is that what your property was used for? Well, funnily, TriMet or Metro utilized the, the building for the next couple of years, if I recall right, for their own offices, which was frustrating. Eventually, it did become retail, high-density housing, like 12-story building or something right there over it. And it was a two-story building before. So eventually, yes, it was used. I should point out that side note to the whole process is when they finally took our property and basically said, we've got the keys, it's our building, we're going to use it as we wish, and not demolish it at this time, that they paid with an out-of-state check. So it didn't clear the bank, and it took five days to get funded. So while I had a, a loan on it, I was paying $380 a day again. It was early 2000. At that time in my life, that was a, a rather large amount of money. And so I, I literally told them, get off my property. You haven't funded yet. You do not own this property until I'm paid. And 
you paid with Mountain State, they actually turned around and made it happen in 24 hours. But just those little things that we had to go through just kind of added insult to injury through the whole process. So did they construct the rail project? They did. But there's now high-density housing where your building once stood. Well, who correct? The, the rail line didn't construct the high-density. No. I don't know who the developer was. I don't know who the developer was. So they took your property for a project and then sold it to another third party, a portion of it. That's my understanding. The entire block is high-density housing now. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Well, let me ask you this. Having been through the entire process and having been sued yourself as a result of something that you didn't ask for, how'd you feel at the end of it? What do you think about the whole process, about the concept of eminent domain, of the involuntary acquisition of property? you have any thoughts on that? I would say that I'm a, I was a big fan of eminent domain when used for the right purposes as it was intended. And that means infrastructure, power lines, water, sewer, roads to benefit the public. When it's utilized for development, such as golf courses, developments, that is not the proper use of eminent domain. That benefits an individual or a group and not the people, not as it was intended. To utilize government powers to benefit an investment group, or a university in this case, but as it's been done in the past, golf courses, country clubs, developments. My stepfather lost a building in Portland many years before me because they wanted to expand a park area on the waterfront, but they didn't use it for the park. They made a development there. Again, investors ended up owning the property that his building sat on. That's an inappropriate use of eminent domain. Right. So how, how do you feel about the use of eminent domain in your situation? Do you think it was appropriate or inappropriate? It was an abuse. It was an abuse. They wanted high-density housing. It gave them the ability to do to utilize it for that, to, to put high-density housing there for development, which is, again, not as it should have been used. Wow. But you, I, I guess, once you paid off all your own legal fees... And your own expenses and whatever lien or mortgage you had on that property, you must have had uh, something left over and you reinvested that money. Yeah? Yes, I did. First, I reinvested in a, another property, commercial property, and later I sold that property and purchased the property I live on now with the winery and the taste room and the vineyards over in Newburgh, Oregon. And it's, it's literally 20 miles from where I grew up. It took a little while to find the right property and get this all started, but yes, it eventually became the right property it should have been. What gave you the idea to take these proceeds and buy a winery? I could, like, if I lost some property in eminent domain, Jeff, it would never occur to me to buy a winery. Well, it, it wasn't exactly on the radar at that time. In the early 2000s, we started Oregon Wine Services and Storage. As my stepfather and I started a bonded wine storage facility, and we were shipping and storing tax-paid and bonded wine for local wineries. Oregon's wine industry was up and running, and it was growing, and there was some services that weren't being adequately met. So we stepped in and started this business. And so that was in 2002. In 2003, we made a partnership with Laurent Montalou, and we started making wine. So a custom crush is where we're producing wine for other wineries on premise. And that's what we started doing. I started our label, Eminent Domain, in 2006, purchasing some fruit from a vineyard and producing it in our custom crush facility. And in 2008, I found this property. And then I planted the vines in 2009. So the Eminent Domain... <laughs> the first investment was income producing real estate, light industrial, which became a vineyard eventually. Again, income producing property. And it sounds like you didn't buy a vineyard. You built and created a vineyard on this beautiful piece of property. By the way, I want to take a quick moment and just tell our listeners, I've kind of been stalking Jeff and his family and the winery on Instagram, and they have the kind of life that it doesn't, it's just so beautiful. Your property is so beautiful. They've 
from what I could see on Instagram, you had a facility and now you've built on and you've got a bigger, better, badder facility, but you should check them out on Instagram. I believe it's just at eminent domain on Instagram, of course, with an E on the end, but I loved seeing the pictures of your property and the events that go on out there. It's fascinating. And what a beautiful spot. I hope to get there in person. Thank you. Absolutely. It's beautiful. The views here are just incredible. And as October nears, we'll get up in the morning. We're relatively high elevation, sitting around 680 feet. So we'll look down over the valley and we'll be sitting above the clouds in the morning when we're harvesting. And it is unbelievable. It's the most beautiful place in the world. Magical. Jeff, I got to ask the question that everybody wants to know the answer to. Why did you put an E at the end of domain? There are other wineries that utilize the name domain, meaning on high, uh, a home, an estate, such as uh, Domain Drone, Domain Serene, Domain Divio. Domain is a common used phrase for a winery, for an estate, and it is with an E. So having lost the property through eminent domain without an E, I kind of took the tongue-in-cheek response of adding the E. And I thought of at first of putting it as a domain eminent, but really eminent domain made is the most apropos. So he did that. I love Finally, that. My, thank you. My, my sister is a talented artist and she was the first one to kind of take a shot at the label to doing our original label. And I asked her if she would like to create a label for eminent domain. And she said, why would you want to name something that negative? And (laughs) that's a darn good good question. question, Yes. And so she never did uh, submit a label to me. I had somebody else do it. She really thought it was that negative. It can be negative. And my experience and hers was very negative. But again, I hope the process isn't abused often. Right. I hope that it's utilized for us. Well, I want to get more into your winery operations in a minute, but let me ask you this. Kristen and I are both in the industry, in the right-of-way industry. We're on the, the opposite side, and we know that eminent domain is a bit of a pejorative. We know this. So my question is, what type of reaction do you get from your customers or visitors? Is the name of your winery a conversation piece or do people come in and say, yeah, let's change the system. Let's throw those SOBs out of office who support this stuff. What kind of reaction have you gotten from your customers to the name? I would say rarely is it negative. I think that most people understand the tongue-in-cheek response, but they all want to know the story. And that's one thing I recommend other winemakers that learn from my mistake. If you don't want to relive an unfortunate incident in your life, don't name your (laughs) wine after that unfortunate incident. I get to relive it daily or somebody asks me where the name came from. And I've asked my wonderful crew to help me with that and do the explaining for me so that I don't have to continue to relive it daily. It's a past memory. Things are great today. But isn't this kind of like if I were going to start or or somebody else were going to start a winery, say, my winery is going to be called Horrible Car Accident or... Atrocious (laughs) Divorce Wine. That sounds delicious. (laughs) Hey, I want to take a minute and thank our sponsor, HDR, one more time. Did you know that this entire episode was made possible by HDR, but in particular by our friend Lee Inger, who had the idea... For this episode, she told us we should call Jeff with a minute domain and hear his story because she knew that he had a fascinating story, and it is. Yeah, that's true. Thank you, Lee Inger, and thank you, HDR, for making this episode possible, both in concept and in production. Did you know that HDR is an employee-owned company that's been around since 1917? Wow. Yeah, that's a long time. You can take your career to the next level at HDR working on transportation, water, power, and renewable right-of-way projects. HDR is currently hiring right-of-way technicians, agents, and project managers in Texas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, Wyoming, Washington, and Oregon. Sometimes I call that Oregon. Postings postings can be found at hdrinc.com. HDRinc.com. 
go jumpstart your career, or feel free to reach out to Lee Inger, Elaine Verver, or Amy Mims. Any of them can tell you all about what it's like to work at HDR and what a great career awaits you. Thanks, HDR. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, HDR, for making this episode possible. We play a little game on our podcast called Over Under Push. Would you be willing to participate in this game with us without even knowing anything about it yet? Absolutely. Okay, here's how we play Over Under Push. I'm going to give you three things. For each one, you're going to tell me whether it's overrated, it's underrated, or eh, it's a push. It's adequately rated, okay? These are very highbrow. Do you think you can handle it? I'll give it my best. All right. I'm going to tell you the three things first, and we'll go through each one individually. Over, under, push. Number one, boxed wine. Number two, white claw. <laughs> and number three, two buck chuck. What say you? Let's go. Let's start with boxed wine. What do you think, Jeff? Overrated, underrated, or it's a push? I'll give it a push. Honestly, I probably haven't had any since I was in college. I like the fact, and this will go for uh, Two Buck Chuck as well, not everybody needs to drink a, a high-end expensive wine. You could start out with a wine that fits your budget. And hopefully, as you try better and better wines, your palate improves and you discover, and hopefully you have the financial means to purchase a better wine than a boxed wine or a two-buck chuck. So I got to go push. A push. Oh, so you don't have Franzia in your fridge, I'm betting. No, I don't think so. Not these days. <laughs> That's a great answer. Okay. What about White Claws? I uh, never tried it. I'm going to say overrated because it's, it's just sugar. I think it's like aspartame or something. I don't even know that it's sugar. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Even worse. I've never tried it. I shouldn't knock it until I try it, but I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> James, there's actually no reason for you to ever try a White Claw. A beautiful. First of all, you're not female and you're over 24, so there's no reason to drink a claw. <laughs> I had a claw yesterday. <laughs> oh, and some Franzia. Just kidding. Oh, Just kidding. Just kidding. The confessions. Hey, oh, wait. Now, I do have a question. So our friend Lee Inger gave me a bottle of wine from your winery, and it's the only bottle of eminent domain wine that I've ever had. So I, I can't open it or drink it because I keep it in my office because I love it. But I need to know, like, is this a good one? It is a, it's, I'm sure they're all good. It's you guys, but it's a 2017 first protocol Pinot Noir. Is that a good one? How'd I do? You did well. It's, it's again, like asking me if I have a favorite child or if one of my, which I do. Yeah, everyone does. Yeah. It's, it's our lightest Pinot. I utilize the name First Protocol when it's a, a lighter Pinot. We've only done it stylistically twice. And it's yeah. something that nature gives us. It's not something I set out to do. But if the pH goes stagnant or starts to drop and in the ripeness, and I'm just going to say the bricks, but it's just not ripe enough then it can be a little bit lighter. It lays down longer. It ages beautifully. So yes, it's a wonderful wine, but it is our, our lightest and, and typically a little bit more on the affordable side, I'd say. Well, I'm not drinking it. I'm keeping it in my office because I love it. It's And it's a beautiful bottle, <laughs> by the way. I do love your labels as well. Thank you. So, so Jeff, I'm not a sum, okay? And I'll never you be. You don't say. Yeah, I drink Michelob Ultra. So I don't know a lot about these things, but I have watched some wine movies, which we'll get, in, we'll get into that later. So you, what do you call it? Bottle, but you uh, ferment, create, you get some old women to step on grapes in a bucket or something like that on site? We do the full production here. We, we harvest from, we have two vineyards. And both of them on Ribbon Ridge. Ribbon Ridge is an AVA, American Viticultural Area that we live in. And it's marine sediment soils. The soil types really dictate a lot of the flavors of the wine. It's, it's my favorite AVA. And we have our two vineyards here with Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, primarily Pinot Noir, and a little bit of Gamay Noir starting next year. Then we purchase fruit from a few other vineyards. We produce less than 3,000 cases annually. We sell 99.9% .9 of it online or out of our tasting room. We distribute just the smallest amount in Portland or in Oregon. It's intentionally set up that we're going to stay small. There's no design on growing much larger. Did I answer your question? Yeah, no, that's a great answer. And, and so we were actually supposed to record this podcast a couple of days ago. 
and you sent me an email and said, oh, it's not going to work anymore. We have to harvest. And so to explain that to, to a guy like me who drinks Michelob Ultra or maybe some bourbon whiskey, how your life can change so quickly because it's time to harvest. Yeah. When the fruit is ready, we pick. And again, it's not just about bricks. A lot of people will talk about bricks, which is the sugar content. That's a nice barometer, but it's not the end-all, beat-all dictation of when it's ready. And every winemaker or owner has their own design when the grapes are ready. With us, you're looking at the seeds, they're brown, they come out of the, the flesh easy, the skin. I like it being shriveled, a little dehydrated. It's not the prettiest fruit. The old adage is pretty fruit doesn't make pretty wine. It, it, I like it to shrivel a little bit. You get great flavors out of that. So yes, when the Chardonnay hit the right level this last week, we had to pick. So literally we were, we're up there around sunrise we do the harvest, we bring it here, and it goes right to press. When the pinots come in, we'll spend quite a bit of time sorting the fruit as well. And then it goes to the stemmer and to tank. When you say like, okay, the Chardonnay grapes were ready, is that like if you, if it was ready Friday and you waited till Saturday, is that like catastrophic or is it you're going to be okay for a couple days? Like how much of a window do you have when it's time? Is it go time like all hands on deck within the next six hours or we're sunk for the season or what? Typically, we're making those pit calls within 48 hours or 24 hours. Chardonnay, yeah, we don't want the sugar to get too high. I would say Chardonnay, in my opinion, is more forgiving than Pinot is. The Pinot, again, where we're at, we're going to let it hang longer. And so as it hangs longer, we're looking even more and more at the weather. Tomorrow, we're supposed to hit 91 degrees, which is a bit hot for mid-September, mid-early September. Ideally, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be getting that hot right now, but we hit 115 degrees this year, all-time highs. <laughs> Something just really changed how we plan out our year. But with the Pinot, we're looking at the weather a lot more. And we used to harvest in mid and late October where I'm at, even the first week of November. And we'll be almost entirely in this year by the first week of October. Our seasons have over the 20 years roughly that I've been in this industry, I've seen the harvest dates move up three and four weeks. And it's not only the weather here, but the weather up north. So up in Canada, if they're getting cold and stormy, you'll see migratory birds coming down, being starlings and robins. And they'll come in and decimate a vineyard. And so in 2010, that's just what happened was the storms came up north, they migrated down, and they're hitting whatever seeds, berries, nuts that are available, and they decimated the farmers here. And you can net and you can do some deterrence, but in 2010, we all know it was the bird year where, where certain vineyards didn't even get picked. The birds got on like locusts. So we're watching the weather, we're watching the bird pressure, and with the weather, the reason we're watching it so closely is Rain means mold and mildew, botrytis. So you can, in 2013, that's what happened to us was the storms came in from, I believe, from Asia. They had some big storms and they washed over and hit us. And the fruit wasn't right for my design. We opted to go ahead and let the fruit hang. So 13, we lost at least a quarter of the fruit in the vineyard to botrytis. And then what we did get isn't my favorite vintage and not just for our winery, our label, but for others, it just hasn't become as good as Oregon is capable of. Note to self, don't buy the 2013. No, vintage. go the 2014. Well, go the 2014. I would say now if you're able to find a 13, there's not a whole lot of it out. There. Collector's item uh, instead? Yes. It aged longer and, and yeah, again, stylistically, it's just not my favorite, but again, nature first, farming first. We can manipulate certain things, but a vintage should speak to what actually happened. Jeff, this is completely fascinating. I think I've considered like, okay, wildfires could be a problem for a vineyard. Uh, a yes. drought could be a, a problem for a vineyard. 115 degree temperatures where you're not used to that could be a problem for a vineyard. I've never considered the bird aspect. That's fascinating. And to think that's something that you're tracking and watching all the time. I do have a question for you. So you were harvesting grapes, I believe, a, a couple days ago for your Chardonnay. When 
if I'm like, all right, I'm going to buy that Chardonnay that they were harvesting, like, when can I buy that? I know it's a long process. So is it, how long does that take? Well, the Chardonnay will go to barrel here shortly and it will sit in those barrels until next summer. It'll probably bottle in July and or August. Okay. So if you come back on the show in a year from now, we can be drinking that Chardonnay right now, maybe? Yes. Super. Super. That's fascinating. Now, the Pinots uh, will be picking, well, some of our younger vines will be picking as early as a week from now, I would hope. They're just, they're young, they're cropped very light. So as we bring those in, they'll spend a few weeks in tank fermenting primary fermentation and they'll move off to barrels. And then they'll be in there until next August, September. And then we'll be blending them and moving them off to bottles. And then they'll sit depending. We'll sell some early with the recommendation that you let them lay down for a while, but we'll be releasing those over the next year following. Okay. That is also fascinating. And I have a question for you about that. So now that we're talking about Pinots, after following you on Instagram and looking at your website and and checking out some of the things that you guys have been doing, I noticed you had a post and I think it was that your 2014 Reserve Pinot Noir got a 96, a score of 96 in Wine Spectator, which seems for for someone who is absolutely not knowledgeable about this stuff as I should be, that seems like a really big deal. So I'm wondering when you put out your new Pinot Noir every year or your reserve, is everybody waiting on pins and needles to see if it gets a good score? And when it does, like that 2014 reserve Pinot Noir, does it sell out? Do you have a party? Is it like you want an Oscar? Like to me, that seems like a really big deal. Is that a really big deal? And what do you guys do when you have a wine that comes out that really uh, gets a lot of publicity and a good score from Wine Spectator or whatever. Yeah, that was, well, again, remember, we just came out of 2013 where the media just panned our vintage. We didn't get the accolades that we'd hoped for. And then 14 came out and it was a beautiful growing year. I was, as was 15, 16, 17, 18. We've had some amazing weather, but 14 scores, we knew it was a very good wine. We got 94 points from Wine Spectator on the estate that year and 96 on the reserve. And for being a very small winery, we were ill-prepared for it, to say the least. We shut our website down when they, uh, they do a kind of a pre-release online. Wine Spectator does to say, and if you subscribe, you can find it out before everybody does what the upcoming scores are. And I was on vacation at the Oregon coast and my phone blew up. The text just started going crazy. So I called Camille, our, our manager here, our general manager, and asked her to shut the website down because everybody was buying it at such a fast pace, we weren't going to have enough to share. We let the wine club have it only. And that's how we had to slow things down. So we've submitted scores for a few different years, all the way up to 2018. And we've pretty consistently got 93s, 94s, 95, I believe. So the scores have been very generous and very appreciative of it. But we've stopped submitting for a while just because we haven't, the demand has been great and we only have so much wine and we want to make sure our wine club gets first shot at anything. So we've just slowed down the pace a little bit. That being said, the wildfires of 2020 have got a lot of people having negative comments about the vintage. We, We had one vintage vineyard that we purchased from that did have smoke taint and we weren't able to use the fruit. But the rest of it's been pristine and beautiful, small clusters that year, complexity is amazing. So I'm very proud of it. And I want to submit it for scores again because I wanted the people to know that 2020 in Oregon, if you avoided the smoke taint, it was a very special year. So I'm I'm anxious to do that. So I can't let this go. Smoke taint, that or (laughs) smoke taint, Smoke from the wildfires affected the fruit, the taste of the fruit? Yes. Did it really? Yeah. So it's not like you yeah. drink the wine and go, oh, it's got a nice smoky flavor. It's like, oh, this no. got smoke taint. <laughs> no, it's not like you're going to pair it with a good brisket and think you, you hit it right. <laughs> it's some Carolina barbecue. It's more of dirty ashtray smoke. Ooh. It's it's very objectionable. So we had one vineyard that we purchased from, and it gets no fault of theirs. You can't do anything about it. The new smoke comes in, uh, new smoke, a, a nearby fire, and it drifts right over the, the vineyard. And it if it lingers there, it can ruin the fruit. There are some things you can do. 
in the finding process to try to remove it. But every time you're stripping away a bad thing, you're stripping away a good thing. And so yeah. comes the point of how much do you want to manipulate the wine or you just finally throw the baby out with the bathwater. Wow. Your life was stressful with dealing with eminent domain, no E. Yeah. Sounds like eminent domain with an E is also a little bit stressful. It's I true. Stay. I, I also have two daughters, 11 and 15. So, yes, it's stressful. Say oh, no more. Yeah. Hey, Jeff, so I've got a question for you. And then Kristen has a question for you. So my question, which is the serious of the two, is, is the dream of the 90s still alive in Portland? Reference to Portlandia, yes. I rarely go to Portland. My wife and I used to like to go out on date nights and go downtown because there's so many great restaurants down there. Yes, there, it, the old adage of keep Portland weird is true. It's an interesting group. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were out there in 2019 where the International Right-of-Way Association's annual educational conference was in Portland. And that's the first time I'd, I'd ever spent any time there. I think I will keep a lot of my comments to myself. We had great weather and had a great time. We had but some good Pinot Noir, too. It is a I'll just tell you that. It's a different culture than it is on the East Coast, I got to tell you. And then after that trip, I started watching Portlandia, and I thought, huh, okay, now this all makes sense. I got it. I got it. Listeners, if you have not watched Portlandia, at least Google the dream of the 90s is alive in Portland. Yeah. It's a kick. <laughs> All right. I've got a question. It's also, again, my questions are always very highbrow. So I, I hope I don't offend you. Um, I don't want to come across as condescending or something. Oh, boy. Here it goes. Here <laughs> All right. I, I have a pairing question for you, okay? Our podcast, we are known to be big fans of a delicacy. You've probably heard of it. It's called spam. Are you familiar? Yes, I am. I appreciate you not saying anything mean right there. <laughs> we do like spam and we will admit it. We're not ashamed to admit it, but I would like to know what would you pair with spam? Oh. Don't say white claw. That's not on the table. Although that might be tasty. <laughs> How are you preparing the Spam? Is this in a casserole or are we actually oh, no. eating Spam? We're actually eating Spam. We're, we're, no, we're probably going to do it in a cast iron skillet, yes. to be fair. Yes, cast iron skillet. Yep. Fried Spam. Like for breakfast then? Yeah, I, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Four hours snack, a day, yeah. Midnight snack. Whatever. Like right now, I got some. Gosh. He's going to hang up on us. No, I think yeah. he actually has some Spam cooking in his kitchen right now. I'm trying to think of what would go good with a really salty gelatinous pork product nailed it That's a, yep yep see he knows spam he knows spam you first, described it first, well first protocol ah uh, there you go we'll put some <laughs> first protocol with it okay good to know thank you thank you for that <laughs> oh hey you know what time it is let's do another over under push are you ready yes okay this over under push is uh wine movies okay i hope you've seen all of these and if you haven't that's okay are these movies overrated underrated or it's just a push and we're going to start with Psalm. Psalm is a movie that I think you can find on Hulu about people who are training for the Master Sommelier designation. It's fascinating, in my opinion. We are going to talk about Sideways. And the third wine movie is Wine Country. First of all, Jeff, are you familiar with these movies? I don't recall Wine Country. Okay. Well, there's a good reason for that. It's a uh, Netflix movie with, I think it's got Melissa McCarthy and Amy Poehler and Maya. Maya Rudolph. Yeah. Yeah. And they oh. go for a ladies weekend. They go to a winery. It might've been your winery. Probably. Yeah. yeah. No? Not. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing. So. Okay. You can skip that one, but I'd love to know what you think about Psalm and Sideways. Psalm, I just revisited and I loved it. It's so intense as these gentlemen try to get their master sommelier accreditation. And so few actually make it is brilliant. The studying they do and all, I have a horrible memory. So I could never even begin to hope to do it. And one thing they didn't focus on at all is that we're all given a certain amount genetically of taste buds and we're all different. And so the idea that these gentlemen didn't talk about their natural gift that they were given, it was a lot of the studying and all, but there is a certain amount of physical gift that's there. I loved it. I think it's underrated. I think more people need to watch it. It's I, a great show. I well, could not agree more. I loved that show. And it made me want to open 17 bottles of wine and see if I could taste the difference. <laughs> like where uh, they were from. Okay. okay. I, I, I've got a question. I've got a question. I watched it recently. I didn't know what a sommelier I'm Somalia. What, what, I didn't know what that was <laughs> until recently. Okay. 
So, but in the movie, they go and they smell it and they taste it and then spit it in a bucket. It's a and documentary, they, by the way. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. But they call out what they smell and taste. And it, yes. it was like Swisher Sweet cigars, tennis balls, candied lemons. Yes. Yeah. It was the craziest things. So where do they come up with those aromas? They can't be baked into the wine, for lack of a better description. The aromas and the tastes are, are there. And these people are just... I was going to say gifted, but they're, they study they, all, all the descriptors. There are wine wheels for aroma and for taste that kind of give you the general guidelines. But these people have taken that on steroids. They, yeah. they yeah. really got it down to lemon seeds and things that you don't even think about what the taste may be. I love their descriptors. It's very hard to do. When we do our blending, we'll sit down and make tasting notes. And we'll talk about what these wines embody, what they taste like, what they smell like. It's a very difficult thing to do, and it takes a lot of practice. And after yeah. all these years, I'm still coming up with the scriptures like red. Red. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, they say things like over-ripened pear. And then after they taste it, they're like, okay, I think it's from the Rhone Valley. I think it's a 2014 vintage, and, and it, it blows my mind. It blows my mind. Yeah. So, it, oh. it is it is an amazing gift. I do like to try to figure out about how old the wine is. How and would you do how like is it time stamped? What? Well, as far as Pinots go, which is what I typically drink and, and can speak to, is the, the color will change over time. The smell oh. changes over time. And the, and certainly the, the palate. I'd say that part's easy to do, easier to do than you'd think. Well, I'm just going to have to drink a whole lot more Pinot Noir, I think. Exactly. That's, that's it's, all, it's all about practice. I will practice. Okay. What about, oh, we got sideways. What did you think about sideways? Over, under, uh, push? I, I, it got a fair amount of accolades. I thought the acting was great. I love both the actors and they enjoyed the movie tremendously. However, it is a very dark movie of two depraved individuals. Mercy. They're yeah. not lovable <laughs> characters, aren't they? So well, Paul Giamatti's great they, in that. And Thomas they, Hayden Church. Both. <laughs> Oh, there. We talked about this, Jeff, and both of them are deplorable people. So, which raises the next question: Have you ever beat, been beaten savagely in the face with a motorcycle helmet? No, I can honestly say I haven't. <laughs> not on my bucket list either. No, Heather says you better not a bit. Okay, yeah. what we want to cover one other thing before we go: your clientele. How do they hear about you? Do you have winery tours out in this beautiful area? We have a lot of wine tourism here. There's I don't know how many different wineries, five different wineries on my road. And we have a lot of people that come up. We, we're appointment only at this time. Since COVID happened, we all had to roll with the punches. And we went to appointment only to make sure we could adequately distance and staff. And we, along with a lot of my peers, really enjoy being appointment only now. It gives us an opportunity to give better service and more time with the customers. And we're getting people that are more serious about the wine. A lot less people coming up just to drink wine, get drunk, and leave. They're coming up to taste the wine. And I, I appreciate that. Wine Spectator was a boon for us. It really did help put us on the map and have people find out about us. The best advertising we have, though, is our customers speaking well of us and telling their friends. We have people that the locals that come out repeatedly, and we have people that come in from all over the U.S. and come back when next time they come to Oregon for a wine tasting, they come back again. We're very fortunate that we also have an industry that's not competitive with your neighbors. We are very collaborative. We like to support our neighbors. We like to help them where we can. And if somebody comes in and they're an entry-level Pinot drinker, but they're asking for recommendations, we have some wineries that might be right up their alley. And then we have others that come in with a more sophisticated palate and a deeper pocketbook. And we may suggest entirely different group of wineries to go to, again, based on what we think would give them the best experience. Then we have people that bring up their, their kids and they want to go find a place that has a big yard that they can throw a Frisbee. Well, there's a place down the road that would be good for that. Well, I have to tell you, I have been so fascinated by this conversation and I love wine. I really love a Pinot Noir. And I think I'm going to go buy some eminent domain Pinot Noir, do my own little tasting. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. And so you've got a website, eminentdomain.com. 
And if people want to order from you, Jeff, what's the best way to do it? Our website is the best way to do it. There's a shopping cart on there. It's easy to do. The weather's going to be breaking soon. So we'll be doing a lot of shipping this fall. We only ship twice a year unless a customer asks for something specific. We'll ship a bunch out in the later spring before it gets too hot. So the wine arrives in the best condition possible because if it's going out there and it's passing through the Midwest and it's 105 degrees in the back of a FedEx trailer, mm. uh, it's going to ruin the wine. So yeah. we we'll try to make sure that it arrives to its destination in the best condition it can. So yes, go online and you can purchase there. Well, Jeff, I want to say a couple of more things before we wrap up. Number one, thank you for coming on to the podcast. This has been fascinating to see the intersection between eminent domain and wine. I never knew there was one until recently, and that's great. That's great. And I'm so glad that the eminent domain process turned into something that's positive for you, for your clients, for all of us. Number two, I want to thank you and Camille Stabler, your manager, for setting this up. Camille was a great help. Number three, it was great to meet your wife, Heather, and your daughter. Yeah, really appreciative of the support my family gets, the understanding of the odd hours and the work that we do. Great life. It, Great it life. does. It looks like an absolutely beautiful life. And again, I would encourage anybody to find Eminent Domain on Instagram. It will brighten your day. Your posts are just, the pictures are so beautiful. Pets will greet you at the door when you come for a tasting. <laughs> I believe you have a tasting dog that, that greets people. They do yoga. It's just we, it's we, amazing. Yeah, we have, a, we have two dogs here and one of them doesn't like other dogs. So uh, unfortunately, we have no dog policy because my dog will attack other dogs. He's small. But he's, this is his winery. His, I don't need other dogs. This is his winery. It sounds like a Jack yeah. Russell to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. But yeah, we're big on family and community. And yes, we have pigs and chickens and whatnot at the other vineyard. And uh, yeah, we do love the farm life. Thanks again, Jeff Meter, Eminent Domain Winery. This was a great episode. Until next time. Hmm, crisp, high viscosity. I'm thinking North American, Southwest region, maybe Arizona. Final answer, it's a 2021 Mango White Claw. Boom. Hi, this is Lee Inger, and you've been listening to Infrastructure Junkies. It was a pleasure for HDR to sponsor this episode. I first met Jeff Meter several years ago. He might not even remember me. When we ordered a case of eminent domain to share and gift to our friends and colleagues in the industry. He delivered the case to our office in Salem, Oregon, and it was early days for the winery and Jeff gave me a hat with their logo. I've gifted many bottles of eminent domain over the years at different industry events, and people are always surprised that there's a winery that sports the name of the important and sometimes challenging, but always interesting work that we do in right of way.